Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Lost Art of Dying Well, and what we can learn from it today, by Lydia Dugdale. The 1st of November marks All Saints Day on many church calendars, a day when we Christians remember our martyrs together with all the faithful, both living and departed. On that day, we celebrate that our communion is not simply with one another on earth, but is also with all saints of all time, including those who have died. For some people, the notion of fellowship with departed saints might be quite exciting. They may have pondered questions about the saints in school assemblies or RE lessons. What was racing through Abraham's mind when he was attempting to sacrifice his son Isaac? What would Mary say that a sinless Jesus was like as a toddler? Did Jonah float around inside the great fish or did he find something on which to perch himself? But others among us might wish to skip All Saints Day altogether. Talk of dead saints feels positively medieval, even a bit morbid. Some of us might wonder about our own saintliness, or lack thereof. Could we really experience ineffable joy in an afterlife? Moreover, the very suggestion of an afterlife implies that we ourselves must die, an uncomfortable prospect for most of us. Such divergent reactions to the day are revealing. On the one hand, the idea of having saints to remember is to inspire us to live well. They invite us to examine their lives and grow ourselves in response. On the other hand, they remind us that our days are numbered. And because our days are numbered, we should attend carefully to what it means to live wisely. Saints teach us that if we want to die well, we must live well. But living well in order to die well doesn't simply happen. It takes work. It takes preparation. Which is why this year, on All Saints Day, it's worth asking the question, am I prepared for death? In the late Middle Ages, the Ars Moriendi, or Art of Dying genre of literature, developed in response to mass loss of life from a 14th century outbreak of bubonic plague. The genre consisted of a number of handbooks on how to prepare for death. Although the earliest text was anonymous, historians believe that its authorship had a connection to the Western Church. After the Reformation, Protestant versions began to circulate and later handbooks omitted religious particularity altogether. The handbooks grew in popularity through the West for more than 500 years. This notion of living well, to die well, lay at the core of the various iterations of the Ars Moriendi. Early texts warned readers that five temptations lead to dying poorly. Temptations to doubt, despair, impatience, greed and pride. If you don't want to die a doubting, despairing, impatient, greedy and proud person, 
you must cultivate the virtues of faith, hope, patience, generosity and humility now. But the Ars Moriendi texts were very clear the virtue did not happen to a person all at once at the end of life. Rather, it required habituation. Cultivating virtues was the work of a lifetime. If you want to be remembered as a person of sound character, a generous person of hope and goodwill towards others, you cannot delay making such attributes a regular practice. If you are willing to be martyred for your faith, as some of those early saints were, you've got to be sure it is a faith worth dying for. I once met a man who had converted from the religion of radical self-centeredness to Christianity. When I asked him why, he told me that of all the world's religions, Christianity had the best story. As with the martyred saints, it was for him a story worth dying for. And Old Saints Day reminds us that in Christianity, death is stranger than you might think. Death exists as a paradox for Christians, as something once lurking and vanquished, Death is the enemy that at long last will be destroyed. And death has already been swallowed up in victory. But you might ask, if death has already been defeated, what remains to be destroyed? And if death will be destroyed, how has it then been defeated? This enigma might partially explain why many regular church attenders are neither physically nor spiritually prepared for death. Researchers at Harvard University have shown that people who describe themselves as most supported by their religious communities are also most likely to reject hospice care and instead to elect aggressive life-extending technology. The story goes as follows. Death is an enemy because it suggests rejection of God. From the beginning, God tells our forebearer Adam that he can freely eat of any tree in the garden but one. If he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will die. Thus, from the beginning, God equates the possibility of human disobedience with the actuality of death. Of course, Adam and Eve eat the proverbial apple, and when they do, they don't immediately die, but they experience a sort of death. For the first time, they become filled with shame and fear. They hide themselves from God. They cast blame. God tells them that moving forward, their life will be filled with great suffering. God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Disobedience is what Christians call sin, and it brings death. Sin severs that once harmonious relationship between God and people, a fact that also grieves God, which is why God does not let death have the final word. The story gets better. Since we humans cannot possibly undo the drastic results of our disobedience, God becomes fully human in Jesus Christ, so liable to death, while also retaining full divinity which cannot die. Then, as a human on a cross, he dies 
as the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of humankind. But this God-man does not stay dead. After three days in a tomb, Christ is resurrected, defeating death on what has come to be known as Easter Sunday. Christ's resurrection functions as a sort of guarantee that all God's people will one day be resurrected and receive new bodies, that day on which the great enemy of death will be destroyed once and for all. If Adam and Eve brought death into the world, the resurrection hope is that death will be no more. This year on All Saints Day, we have the opportunity to consider what it means to commune with all saints, extending back to Adam and forward to future generations. We have the opportunity to study the saints and then examine ourselves. What sort of people are we becoming? Are we living well to die well, as the Ars Moriendi handbooks teach? And of all the stories out there, which provides the greatest hope in life and in death? Sometime the Killing Just Has to Stop by George Pitcher I admire my friend Clive Stafford-Smith for two principal reasons. He's a demon pace bowler for my Vickers 11 cricket team and, as a lawyer, he has dedicated his career to defending prisoners on death row. I'm not sure whether batsmen or US attorneys find him the more threatening. But I know I'd want to have him on my side, whether on the pitch or in court. We always have to be careful how we describe people these days. I nearly wrote that Clive is an atheist. More accurately, he is an unbeliever. He's certainly pleased to have God on his side, if it means appealing to the Christian conscience of jury members in a capital trial. But it's two very ordinary comments that I remember from hanging out with him, which come to mind now as we witness the hatred of war in the Middle East and which evoke words spoken to me by the principal of my theological college some years ago. Be very careful to notice, George, where you encounter the Christ, meaning that it won't necessarily be among the pious, the faithful and the churched. The first was a comment... I heard Clive make in an interview. It's always been a rule of my life that if someone is being hated, you have to get between the hated and the hater. I have tried, when I can, to stand in the corner of what we might call the hatee. The second was a phrase spoken by an actress in a play that arose from Clive's work with the charity he co-founded, Reprieve. It's an, a monologue comprising the story and the court evidence given in the US by Lorelai Guillory, whose six-year-old son Jeremy was taken and murdered by Rick Langley. Lorelai visited him in jail and subsequently appeared as Clive's witness to plead that Langley be spared the death penalty. Her breathtaking words of explanation, which have stayed with me since, were simple. Sometime, the killing just has to stop. It's the simplest words that cut through the political noise and sophistry. 
I believe the voices of Western powers should be calling for insisting upon or even demanding a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Our church leaders have done so, but these voices are called naive or simplistic or disloyal or worse. In the UK, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has called for a ceasefire, pitching him against his political party leader, Sakir Starmer. Khan is a Muslim. Again, let's be careful to note where we encounter the authentic voice of peace. Conservative Minister Paul Bristow has been sacked by the government for calling for a ceasefire, while Prime Minister Rishi Sunak continues to mouth that Israel has a right to defend herself. So, the call for peace, against the grain of power, comes from across the political spectrum. Against it are the claims of naivety and disloyalty, which state that the situation is far too complex for peace, or that Israel must be left to its own self-determination. But even here, the runes read for ceasefire. Take two recent and prominent commentators on the conflict, again from across the political spectrum, and again we must be careful in this febrile climate how we describe people. These are not Jewish commentators, so much as columnists who happen to be Jews. One, Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian writes a superb piece that isn't about Team Palestine versus Team Israel and picking which is wrong. Israeli novelist and peace activist Amos Oz was never wiser than when he described the Israel-Palestine conflict as something infinitely more tragic, a clash of right versus right. His payoff is devastating. There are no winners only never-ending loss. The other, Daniel Finkelstein in The Times, writes equally soundly that foreign observers calling for ceasefire fail to understand Israel's roots. He cites 1958's blockbuster novel-to-movie Exodus to posit that Khan's call for a ceasefire was not merely wrong, not merely absurd, it was utterly pointless. Yet he concludes with a quote from Exodus's final scene beside an Arab and Israeli grave. The dead shall always share the earth in peace. And that's not enough. It's time for the living to have a turn. Then Finkelstein's own payoff. May it come to pass. Faced with complexities and impossibilities, both these writers seem to conclude almost in prayer with a yearning for peace. It's difficult to see how that peace comes without ceasefire. I've referenced a Muslim and a Jewish voice so far. What of the third Abrahamic faith, the Christian voice? One hopes it joins the others, with the old hymns still small voice of calm. It has to call for ceasefire because, as my friend Clive puts it, we have to get between the hated and the hater. And as Lorelei said, sometime the killing just has to stop. In Search of Martin Luther King by Ian Hamlin
Stories define us, especially Genesis stories, stories of formation, of how things began. Because beginnings often harbour within them all the seeds of future growth, defining so much of what's to come, size, shape, colour, character even, and what's true of the natural world is also so often true for our own life journeys. As I embark upon a particular journey, in many ways the centrepiece of my three-month sabbatical break from my life in Christian ministry, I find myself reflecting on a bigger, longer, greater journey that has consciously and unconsciously shaped a good deal of that whole life. I'm writing these words on a train from Boston, Massachusetts to Washington, D.C., eight hours through a variety of weather, landscapes and a whole variety of provincial and city stations, some of them famous, others vaguely familiar, some completely unknown. I'm off in search of flesh on the bones of a story, a much fabled tale of a man and his life. But first, more of mine. I grew up the youngest of four children in a pretty traditional working-class family in Bristol that, by virtue of my parents owning their own home and my two older brothers having gone to university at the end of the 60s, now found itself contrasted starkly with all of my aunties and uncles knocking on the door of middle-class comfort. By the early 80s, however, as I was preparing to leave school, that all looked and felt a little different. Not having acquired sufficient spiritual credits to attend the city's church school, and with my brother's academies having long since migrated to the private sector, I'd meandered my way through the local comprehensive, with enough wisdom to avoid most of the outcomes for which it was renowned, but not enough application to really supersede them all. What I did learn, though, was a strong sense of justice together with a certain perplexity as to why this wasn't more universally shared, and even in some cases its absence appearing to be celebrated. In our playing fields and its environ, there was a pretty regular flow of what today would be called racially aggravated incidents. I vividly recall one boy in my year having his legs nastily broken. What I also remember, though, was the daily ritual of being handed a National Front promotional leaflet at the school gate. Difference begetting antagonism, spawning violence and demanding retribution seemed to be the story. I hated it and instinctively railed against it. My response was hardly dynamic or revolutionary. I think I went on a march or two. I remember buying a mug once. Yes, I was that sort of kid. Oh, and I put a poster on my wall. Again, a fairly generic image, probably bought from Athena, of a man half a generation older than me and a whole world away. A man on a platform, speaking. And some of the words he spoke, superimposed over the top of him, I have a dream. A short while later, at a friend's house, I came across a book, a thin tome and looking pretty sorry for itself, clearly already well-thumbed. I started to read it and quickly became transfixed. It was more speeches from this same man, yet these were different. 
They spoke more about motivation than outcomes, about the passionate why of action, more than the how of achieving meaningful change. It was strength to love. A book or sermons for, I discovered this man was not a politician, but a preacher. To cut a long story short, this encounter, these thoughts, along with a few others, caused me to translate my hitherto rather semi-detached relationship with my local Baptist church into something more committed. Within eight years, I was in London, training for ministry, and I've now been in church leadership for 30 years. And so our stories entwine, mine and Martin Luther King's, oddly, unexpectedly, yet profoundly. And so I find myself on a train to DC and then on to Atlanta, Montgomery, Birmingham, to dig more into his story, to discover more of my own. Because stories not only define us, they fuel us. Idealism is all well and good, but where does it come from and how might it be sustained? Inspiration is often elusive, a fiery necessity for a purposeful, effective life in any sphere. But it needs a source, something in which to be rooted. A craving for justice, an attraction towards generous love, a passion for human fulfilment, and a whole host of other things all seem like good and obvious things in and of themselves. But why? And given they are frequently costly and hard-fought, from where might the motivation come to make the, ne the necessary sacrifices? Martin Luther King did what he did because he believed what he believed, given that it seemed obvious, inevitable, for him to act, whatever the cost. The Apostle Paul encouraged the first generation of Christian believers, living challenging lives at the heart of the empire in Rome, to tell stories. How can they hear unless someone tells them, he reasoned, and then with a flourish, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It seems we need preachers, storytellers, more than we do politicians. For stories rooted in truth throw a spotlight on those lived core beliefs out of which glorious, effective, fulfilled lives develop. With that knowledge in mind, I'm off on my journey to experience tales old and new and see what they do to me. I'll let you know what I discover. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.